So we've got a treat today. This is the Lanier Lectureship Day, 12th Annual Lanier Lecture, and a real celebration of the life of the mind. We've got Charles Mickey with us from the Lanier Foundation. Charles, wave it out. Let's recognize Charles. He's a long-time friend. But tonight at 7, so head-to-head with BSU, so maybe you can eat quickly and come over for the, the uh, session tonight over in the Talkington building at 7 o'clock. Darrell L. Bach is our speaker. Dr. Bach is a senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary right here in Dallas, Texas, the great state of Texas. He's also the executive director of cultural engagement for the Hendricks Center there. He's also a New York Times best-selling author. He's written over 40 books, and these are not light books. Uh, he, his special fields of study involve hermeneutics, the use of the Old Testament and the New, Luke Acts, the historical Jesus, gospel studies, and the integration of theology and culture. It is this latter area that is the focus of his work at the center where he's responsible for producing a web-based weekly podcast on issues of God and culture called The Table. He has served on the board of, Cho- of Chosen People Ministries for over a decade and also has served on the board of Wheaton College for several years. He is a graduate of the University of Texas, Dallas Theological Seminary, and the University of Aberdeen, where he got his Ph.D. He's had four annual stints of postdoctoral study at Tubingen and uh, the university there and is also served as the Alexander von Humboldt Scholar through a scholarship offered by the Federal Republic of Germany. He also serves as an elder emeritus at Trinity Fellowship Church in Richardson, Texas, is editor-at-large for Christianity Today, and served as president of the Evangelical Theological Society for the years 2000-2001. He's married to Sally, has two daughters, both married a son, three grandsons, and a granddaughter. So... You're, you're in for a treat today. Let's welcome Dr. Darrell Bach. Well, I need to give credit for all my grandchildren. I now have a second granddaughter. So, um, so we just keep adding to the fold. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I don't have much time with you, but I do want to thank uh, the college for, and the university for inviting me here to speak. And I have a question for you. If you could summarize the Christian faith in one word, what would that word be? I just want to just shoot some words at me. Love. Love. Okay. What else? Jesus. Jesus. What else? Discipleship. All right. What? Joy. Joy. All right. Man, just keep them coming. Uh, I'm going to look at a passage in which Peter has... The choice of one word that he's going to use to summarize everything that the faith is about that we talk about and that we share. And guess what that word is? Hope. Okay, why? Of course, right? It's the theme for the year. So let's take a look at the passage and see what it has to say. If you have your Bibles. Oh, this is another thing I want to do. Um, uh, How many of you have a Bible with you that is made up of pages and has a cover on it? Okay, hold it up nice and proud. All right, there, look at, there are just a few of them. All right, how many of you have your Bible on a device? Okay, hold it up nice and proud. All right, all right, man, you guys have come into the modern world. All right, so, um, 
By the way, if you have your Bible on your phone, your phone is not a smartphone, it's a spiritual phone. All right? Give it credit for having the Bible on it. All right? So let's dive in. I'm going to dive right into this passage. I want to take a look at this text and kind of put, there's a very famous passage in the middle of this text. It reads like this, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts. This is 315. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. So that's the passage. And in fact, I don't know a memory verse scheme that uh, goes around for people who memorize verses of the Bible that doesn't have this passage in it. But what I want to do is I want to tell you what's around it, because I think what's around it helps to open it up even more. So let's back up to verse 13. For who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good? And I tell people, that verse is for parents. All right? You tell your kids, do the right thing. Um, Be good and harm won't come your way. You'll stay out of trouble, etc. And you probably, y'all are young people. I'm sorry, I'm almost 70 years old. Y'all are pretty young. And so, I, you know, you're, my, you're the age of my, actually, you're the age of my oldest grandchild. And so, so this is granddad saying to you, just do the right thing. Be good. Uh, do what you ought to do. And, and in a normal world, that would work. But we don't live in a normal world. So you get verse 14. Verse 14 says this. But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right. Now just stop and think about that. Because I think we tend to read a text like this. We'll blow by that phrase. If you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. Now there are two things about that verse that get my attention. One is, you're suffering for doing the right thing. This is what I call box law. Every good deed will get punished. We live in a world, we live in a world where you can do the right thing and catch flack for it. That's not unusual. In fact, Jesus spent the whole second half of his time with the disciples saying, if you go my way, the world will push back. You shouldn't be surprised. Which has a sidebar application. That sidebar application is, if you know that you're going Jesus' way and the world's going to push back, You shouldn't be surprised when it happens, and you shouldn't whine when it happens. Because it's coming with the territory. So so that's, but in fact, if you suffer for doing what is right, keep that in the back of your your cash here. We're going to come back to that idea. If you suffer, you're blessed. And then the next part of the verse is a lesson I think the church needs to learn. Do not be terrified of them or shaken. I'll read it one more time. Do not be terrified of them or be shaken. The one response we're not supposed to have to that pushback that is inevitable that comes for doing the right thing and suffering for it is to not be afraid of those who are doing the wrong thing and who are pushing back. And yet oftentimes when I listen to the church interact with the world, I'm hearing fear, and I'm hearing being shaken, and I'm hearing the fact that they've forgotten a verse that's in 1 John, which says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so that's the one response we're not supposed to have, because when you respond out of fear, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to respond in the wrong way. So this passage sets up, then, our famous verse. 
But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone about the hope you possess. If I were to be very precise with the Greek here, the middle part of this verse would be always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks about the hope that you possess. The word answer or defense is the Greek word apologia. We get our English term apologetics from this word. I'm supposed to, and I'm not apologizing for my faith. I'm prepared to defend my faith. But notice, this is where Peter makes his choice. What I am defending is the hope that I possess. So we said love, we said Jesus, we said joy, we said lots of things. We didn't say hope. But in the end, the gospel is about hope. And by the way, it's not, I hope this happens. It's about a real hope that is coming our way. And when we defend what is the gospel that's being talked about here, we are defending the hope that God has given to the world. I tell people that when we talk about the cross only in relationship to the gospel, and we do not talk about the new life that comes out of it, okay, we have not presented the good news that is the gospel because the good news of the gospel isn't just that your sins are forgiven. The good news is you can have a new life in connection with God. I tell people if you only talk about the cross when you talk about the gospel, only talk about the sin to set up the gospel, you've only done half the job. So I'm going to illustrate it for you. I'm going to have to be Baptist. Okay, so we're going to do immersion here. All right. So I'm going to do an allusion of a passage that's in Romans 6. All right? So, so we've got to, we're going to immerse. We're not going to sprinkle. Okay? We're not going to pour. Get that weak stuff out of here. All right? Okay? So I've got, so I've got this immersion I'm going to go in. If I only talk about the cross, this is what happens. I go into the water. That's the gospel with the cross only. Because that's being dead to sin. But the other half of the Romans passage says what? I'm alive to God. I'm raised alive to God. So the gospel inherently has a tension in it. The tension that it has is the difference between what I call challenge and invitation. There's a challenge on the one hand. That's the cross part. That's why you need what Jesus Christ has done But Jesus doesn't die for sin just to leave us there. Jesus dies for sin so that we can be cleansed. And in a cleansed vessel, the Spirit comes in and gives us new life. And so if I only talk about the tension and the cross and the sin, and that's oftentimes all the world hears. And I don't talk about the hope and the new life and the reconnection to the living God. Being connected to the one who made you in his image. Who made you in his image. You're made in the image of God to image God. If I don't talk about that part. I have not talked about the gospel. And I have not talked about hope. And I'm supposed to defend the hope that I possess. First of all I need to understand that I possess it. And that I have that hope. And that I feel that hope. And that I'm impacted by that hope. And then the second thing that I'm supposed to understand is. That hope directs are the lenses through which I see life. One word to summarize the entire faith. 
That word is hope. We're not done. But always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope you possess. And then verse 16 is another part that we need to learn. Yet do it with courtesy and respect. When you defend this hope, even when you're pushing back against those who push back against you, when you do that, you're supposed to do it with courtesy and respect. Two Greek words here, prautetes, prautetas, and phobos. Prautetas means gentleness, meekness. A courtesy is one way to talk about it. It's deferential. Phobos is, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word is phobos. Courtesy and respect. When I see us interacting with the world about the hope that we possess, sometimes the two words that don't jump to my mind when I hear that interaction are the terms courtesy and respect. In other words, tone matters. It's not just that you share the truth, it's how you share the truth that matters. And so tone matters. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience, so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ, there it is the second time, you're getting slandered for your good conduct in Christ. Every good deed will get punished. May be put to shame when they accuse you, for it is better to suffer for doing good. There it is a third time. Every good deed will get punished. Don't be surprised. If God wills it, then for doing evil. I'm supposed to persevere in doing the right thing in the midst of a world that wants me to do the wrong thing. And then the passage in verse 18 turns a corner. And it says, why do we do it? Why do we live this way? Why does someone willingly do the right thing, catch flack for it, from people who do the wrong thing and are willing to go there again and again and again and again? Part of it is the hope that we have. And part of it is the reason that comes in verse 18. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And you go, well, yeah, of course. That's why God, he, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I like to shorten the verse. I like to shorten it to this. God so loved the world that he gave. That's the character behind what God did in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave. The just for the un- Oh yeah, of course, God, God came and he, he, he died. He died for them. He died for them. He died for them. And then there's the curveball. Curveball's in the next line. We don't do this because we're thinking about them. We do this because we appreciate what God has done for us. Look at the next line. To bring you to God. Why do we do this? We do this because we replicate a cycle. When we're engaging with the world with the hope that we give a defense for. And the cycle works like this. When my back was turned to God. And God tapped me on the shoulder. When I wasn't interested. That's how God reached me. And now I'm in the place of doing the same for someone else. I'm supposed to never forget where I came from as I interact with people who push against the gospel. When I do that, my attitude, my approach, my tone, my style of engagement totally changes. 
And we engage in the world in a different way. And we share a hope that is a hope that says to people who are searching for life and probably don't even know why they're here or wrestle with the question. If you listen to the world carefully, you will hear this. I'm trying to find myself. I'm going, find yourself? Looks like you're right here to me. People are searching for location in life. And if there's one thing that the gospel gives to people, it's location. It gives them hope. It gives them a connection to the one who made them. It gives them a connection to their soul with the image of God that dwells within it. It gives a direction to that soul and a hope to that soul. And when we push against people who are pushing against us, we are reminded, you know what? That's exactly what God did when he reached out to me for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And the grace of God overflows in the tone with which we engage graciously with a needy world. So that's my message. That's my hope. My hope is that your grasp on hope is so deep, so great, so profound, so comprehensive, that when you share the hope, you never forget where you came from. You recognize that the person who pushes against you is no surprise. And you love them into the hope. You may have to challenge the way they live. That's part of the message. But on the other end of that challenge that you don't forget is there is an offer of a completely new way of life that is completely different than what the world has to offer and has a much longer sustaining power. That's our hope. And my hope and prayer is that you're equipped to so possess that hope that you're prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. But do it with courtesy and respect because that's what God did with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to be with us, to reflect on your goodness and grace and kindness, to help us have a little glimpse of how we're supposed to engage with those who may not know you, but who desperately need you, even though they might even be totally unaware that they need you. Help us to live and engage in such a way that the hope that is in us is not only talked about, it's seen. And help us to help us, help us by your spirit, be the people of God who manifest your character as we interact with those who need your presence. We ask these things in the hopeful name of Jesus. Amen. Everybody's getting up. You're welcome to stay here if you want, but you're dismissed. Thank <laughs> you.